You're now listening to episode 67 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Thomas Costello here, and as we approach the fourth and final quarter of the year, it's time to start thinking about year-end tax planning in order to implement any last-minute tax strategies that might just save you a few thousand dollars. To assist you with that, we're going to be throwing back our year-end tax tips episode where Brennan and I discuss some year-end tax planning strategies, including home office deductions, retirement accounts, cost segregation studies, 100% bonus depreciation, and more. Before we jump right into today's episode, I want to let everybody know that the Real Estate CPA will be putting on special virtual workshops in October, November, and December of this year where we will discuss year-end tax tips for the first 15 to 20 minutes and then open up the room for questions. This is the perfect opportunity to get answers to your last-minute tax questions before the year ends. Seats will be limited, and you can sign up by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual-workshops or by following the link in the show notes below. But that's not all. We heard your feedback from last year and created a personalized year-end tax planning service for new clients that includes one tax estimate, a call with one of our tax strategists, and a written year-end action plan that includes the steps you'll need to take to implement any last-minute tax strategies to minimize your tax liability. If you're interested in this service, head over to www.therealestatecpa.com slash year end and fill out the form located right on the page and Brandon or myself will get back to you within one to three business days to schedule an initial consultation. If you're already a client, don't worry, we'll be sending out year end tax planning emails to you over the next few weeks to schedule your year end tax planning call, but feel free to contact your tax strategist to get a head start on the process. And without further ado, we'll jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us for our year-end podcast. We're going to give you some year-end tips you need to save money on your taxes. Brandon's here with the first one. Hey, guys. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate everybody's time. Uh, Here with my co-host, Thomas. We're going to walk through some stuff for you. Hopefully save you a little bit of money, especially going into the holiday season. Spend some extra money on gifts rather than taxes this year, right? That's what it's all about. So first kind of best practice that really everybody needs to be adhering to. And this is something that I've talked about over and over and over again. So if you've read my content or if you've listened to previous podcasts or webinars, you probably know what I'm about to say, but it's to itemize all of your invoices. So no matter what type of invoice you get from whoever it is, make sure that you have itemized the invoice as much as you possibly can. So I don't want to receive an invoice that says, $25,000 kitchen rehab. I want to see an invoice that says we have a scope of work of a $25,000 kitchen rehab. And here's how we spent the $25,000 between materials and labor. And I want that to be very specific. The biggest reason for that is something called the de minimis safe harbor, which we will touch on in a second. But just understand that itemizing your invoices in such a way gives you flexibility. And we are really big here at our firm on gaining flexibility. So Structuring your tax position so that you can be flexible at any time of the year, not just you know going into December. But if you itemize your invoices, 
you know, we don't have to necessarily jump on the phone in December to try to figure out what tax strategies you should be using because we can retroactively make a look back decision. So we could be, you know, October of next year preparing your tax returns and look back and say, oh, well, since you itemize all your invoices, we can run a cost seg study or like a, a light version of a cost seg study, get 100% bonus depreciation, or we can use the de minimis safe harbor if the facts align. So really just creating that flexibility by itemizing all of your invoices as much as possible. And what was awesome, we just we actually just went through an itemization of someone's invoice not too long ago where we were able to identify several components of their rehab project that were eligible for the, the, the minimum safe bar and we were able to save them a few bucks in taxes by using that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you and I, we, we work on all these big tax strategy clients all the time. And one of the ones that I was working with recently, he's building new projects himself and he has all the cost data because he's built projects himself. So he already has itemized invoices. That's what he was doing. He he was itemizing all of his invoices already. So it becomes super easy at that point because you just come in, you step in, you look at the situation and you say, yeah, let's let's break this stuff out. Let's qualify for 100% bonus depreciation. But if he just paid a company to build a new house for him or a new rental property for him, and then they just told him, yeah, the, the cost is 200000 bucks, not a lot that we can do there. There's no flexibility. Awesome. So should we, should we jump into a little bit of a low-hanging fruit here, get some of these things cleared off? So for everybody out there who's operating either a small business or you have a rental portfolio or you're doing fix and flips, you want to consider opening up a home office. And what a home office allows you to do so as you take a deduction uh, for a portion of your home that you use for exclusively use for business purposes and is the exclusive place that you do business uh, for your business. So it's the place where you do all the administrative tasks. You might be out in the field swinging the hammer on the fix and flips, but you come home and you handle all your bookkeeping at your desk in your home office. That'd be your home office. Some things to keep in mind with your home office, you're going to need to keep a sketch of your home office. It's going to be a sketch of your entire home. And then within that sketch will be a sketch of your home office itself with the square footage. You also want to take a photograph of that home office and keep any personal items out of there uh, to substantiate in the event that you're ever come under an audit by the IRS. And one of the key things with the home office is not necessarily for the deduction itself. You either take a $5 per square foot safe harbor deduction, or you can use an actual method, which is going to be a portion of your expenses related to your home that relates specifically to your home office. Now, the the whole entire purpose of the home office is not necessarily for the home office deductions, but rather it makes your home a place of business. And when you're traveling back and forth to your rental properties, whether that be to, to the rental property to do a fix and flip, or you're doing a rehab, or you're meeting with a broker, all of these now count as business travel because your home is now a place of business and you're traveling to a place of business. If you didn't have a home office, it'd be a personal commute and those miles are not deductible. Yeah. And and sometimes we get some pushback on the documentation for the home office. There's no hard and fast rules on what what sort of documentation you need to have on hand. But we we just say the more the merrier. So if we can have a sketch of the floor plan, where the home office is on that floor plan, even a photograph, as Tom mentioned, uh, that type of stuff just helps solidify that deduction in case it's ever challenged. I don't know of home office deductions that have been challenged recently. I'm sure that there are some but you just always want to be prepared. And like Thomas said, the mileage deduction, that's really kind of what the, the home office is for. I mean, sometimes, we'll, most of the time, actually, we'll just take the standard um, safe harbor, $5 per square foot for the home office itself. We're not looking to save thousands of dollars from a home office deduction, but it now makes your your 
residence a primary place of business. So now when you're traveling from business location to business location, that's a deductible trip. Just kind of helps solidify that mileage deduction as well. And then we have the minimum safe harbor, which kind of ties into uh, what you were speaking about before with the itemized uh, receipts and, and invoices. So yeah, the minimum safe harbor, basically what the minimum safe harbor does is it allows you to deduct tangible personal property that's under $2,500 per invoice line item. There is an aggregation rule. So for instance, if you're going to purchase an HVAC system, you cannot itemize each and every component of an HVAC system and then deduct the entire HVAC system underneath the minimum safe harbor. But again, it allows that flexibility for us or whoever your CPA is to decide whether or not this component can be deducted under the minimum safe harbor. Some common expenses that would qualify are appliances, dishwashers, refrigerators, stoves, things of that nature. Well, these are the type of items that would qualify under the Miss Safe Harbor. So instead of having to capitalize and depreciate these items over five years, you could simply deduct them in that first year using the Miss Safe Harbor, avoiding depreciation and recapture, and being able to cover the entire cost in full in the year you place that item into service. Yeah, and you have to consider the unit of property that you're improving to with this stuff. So if I replace one window and that costs 300 bucks, I can use the de minimis safe harbor to deduct that one window, where in the past, I would have to capitalize it to the structured unit of property. But if I'm replacing like 20 windows, that could be a material improvement to the structure itself. So then you have that anti-abuse rule that Thomas mentioned where you can't go and itemize your all the components of the HVAC. You have to take that into consideration uh, with the unit of property that's being improved. Uh, but generally speaking, yeah, we, we just tell clients, think of the de minimis safe harbor, that $2,500 threshold. Think of that as a as a CapEx, a capitalization policy. So anything under $2,500, I'm going to write off. Anything over $2,500, I'm going to capitalize and add to the building basis. And, you know, even if you do have to capitalize something, like let's say that, let, let's say that you put carpeting down and the carpeting costs $3,000. Well, c- carpet is personal property. And so even though it's over the $2,500 de minimis safe harbor, we can't write it off as a repair under the de minimis safe harbor, but because it is personal property, we can separate it out on our balance sheet and then use 100% bonus depreciation. So we're still getting the same year tax benefit. Just the difference with the bonus depreciation versus the de minimis safe harbor is that we have to recapture the bonus depreciation at some later point where we don't have to do that with the de minimis safe harbor. But really like for all those folks listening here, that's why we want the flexibility with your itemized invoices. If you itemize your invoices, we can make a game time decision on whether or not we want to use the de minimis safe harbor, uh, which generally we just automatically make that election on every single tax return unless their factual circumstances call for some other sort of treatment. But the, the more that you itemize the invoices, the more flexibility we have. So more on flexibility, some more topics on flexibility. Is setting up a solo 401k or a self-directed IRA before year-end. Actually, self-directed IRAs, you don't have to set up before year-end. You have to set them up by 415 of the following year. But solo 401ks, you do have to have set up by year-end. And what this is going to do is it's going to allow us to extend your tax returns until like October of the following year, if we so chose to do so. But make back contributions. We can retroactively make contributions to our retirement accounts. But the key is is that it has to be set up. If if you don't set up the retirement accounts, then we have nothing to contribute to. And then we would be looking for a next year contribution instead. So if you set up a solo 401k by December 31st, or if you set up a self-directed IRA by 415 of the following year, you can make 
contributions retroactively. So I could have a solo 401k at the CPA firm here. I could have it set up by December 31st and I could extend my, my tax returns out until October of next year. And let's just say October 1st, I decide, you know what? I am going to contribute to my solo 401k from last year and it's going to reduce last year's tax liability as a result. I can do that as long as I set up that solo 401k by December 31st of the current year or a self-directed IRA by 415 of the following year. Just to clarify some dates here for, say, someone who does not have a solo 401k, they only have a traditional 401k with their employer, their deadline to contribute is 1231, correct? The last paycheck of that year for them. Yeah, yeah, good point. So employees are always, even if you have a solo 401k, the employee deadline is still December 31st. So you always have to make that employee contribution. But the employer contribution can go all the way until October next year. And, And for anybody out there who might be thinking of using a backdoor IRA, the thing to keep in mind there is the deadline to roll over to convert an IRA to a Roth IRA is also 1231. So you wouldn't be able to utilize the Roth IRA strategy past 1231 of this current tax year. Yeah, Thomas, you're absolutely right. And and what he means by the backdoor IRA method is the backdoor Roth IRA method. So it's the folks that are phased out of making contributions directly to a Roth IRA how do they still get money into a Roth IRA? Well, you make a non-deductible contribution to a traditional IRA, and then you roll that into a Roth IRA. Now, there are a lot of pitfalls that we see a lot of our clients uh, before they start working with us kind of go through. So one of those pitfalls is, well, I'm going to open up a traditional IRA on, I don't know, four one, and then I'm going to roll that into a Roth IRA on four two. Well, there's something called the step transaction doctrine, which allows the IRS to come in and say, hey, actually, what you really meant to do is just put money into a Roth IRA. So there's no economic substance to this transaction. And as a result, we're going to disallow the transaction. And we're going to say that you just contributed money to a Roth IRA. Um, and now you're subject to a 6% penalty of excess contributions, basically. So what we tell clients is if you are going to use any sort of backdoor Roth IRA method, uh, first, don't ever call it a backdoor Roth IRA method. <laughs> uh, and then second, give it some time. So make that non-deductible traditional or that non-deductible traditional IRA contribution. Give it some time before you roll it over into a Roth IRA. We say 12 months. There's no right or wrong, but we like to be conservative, especially when we're on podcasts giving mass advice. So, <laughs> Absolutely. And I think one last thing to touch on the retirement accounts is these contributions you make to your retirement accounts can lower your taxable income to the point where you may be able to get below with a certain threshold or certain tax bracket. So this is the reason why you want to have this type of flexibility uh, going you know, into year end and even beyond with the self-directed IRAs or the IRAs in general. Yeah, good thoughts, Tom, especially with that 20% deduction, right? So with the 20% deduction, there's two thresholds that you need to be concerned about. If you are single, uh, the threshold is $157,500. If you're married, it's $315,000. And this is the threshold for the 20% qualified business interest deduction, which pretty much allows you to deduct 20% of your qualified business income. Once you cross these thresholds, there becomes a, a complicated transaction uh, calculation, excuse me, where you basically have to take into consideration the unadjusted basis of your assets and the amount of W-2 wages your company is sending out. And it becomes less advantageous and a lot more complicated for sure. So you can keep the, your numbers, your taxable income below these thresholds. Again, 157.5K per single or 315. If you're married, it makes taking this deduction 
much easier. Yeah. And, and you said it there at the end, but that threshold is taxable income. It's not your AGI. So taxable income is your adjusted gross income minus your itemized or standard deduction. And then you get to your taxable income. Then you factor in all your credits, so like child tax credits, and things like that. That comes after your taxable income that directly offsets your actual tax. So what we're looking for is to get our taxable income or our AGI minus our standard slash itemized deductions. We want to get that down below, like Thomas said, 157.5K if you're single, 315K if you're married. But tying it all back, like if I make a $55,000 contribution to my solo 401k or self-directed IRA, that obviously helps my taxable income quite a lot by exactly $55,000. So you can control, if you can control your taxable income, this isn't really available to folks that earn a significant amount of W-2 job. The max you can really reduce that W-2 is by contributing to a solo 401k, just the employee, the employee side of it. But if you're a business owner, you can buy a vehicle, you can buy equipment, you can prepay for subscriptions in December to drop your income enough so that your taxable income drops below those thresholds. Then if you do drop the income below those thresholds, you will get that 20% deduction on top of everything else. So you get a 20% deduction on your qualified business income that's passing through to you. So obviously pretty advantageous to keep those thresholds in mind. Absolutely. Some good stuff for everybody out there. If you're looking to reduce it, you can use the tax. You can use your um, your retirement account contributions. There's something else that might be able to save some people, especially if you're a real estate professional, save you money come year end. And that's cost segregation. There's some some strategies around there that tie in with 100% bonus depreciation on whether or not you can get the cost segregation study done by year end. If you can't get it done by year end, you might have to extend your tax return. Yeah. So a cost segregation study, basically what that is, is it's taking the value of your property and it's allocating it to the different components that make up your property. So a good cost seg study is going to break out the cost of the roof, the windows, the structure, the land improvements, like the parking lot or the driveway, the trees, the shrubs, all of that stuff's going to be broken out, carpeting, appliances, all that stuff. Because when you buy a property, all of those components are included in the purchase price of the property. If I buy a million-dollar property, it just says a million dollars on my balance sheet, million-dollar property on my balance sheet. If I do a cost-seg study, I can break that million dollars down into all the various components. And then where it gets super beneficial, especially now with, like you said, 100% bonus depreciation, then I can take 100% bonus depreciation on any component with a useful life of less than 20 years which with multifamily properties tends to be about 20 to 30% of the purchase price. So a million dollar property, I can take a, you know, 250K, 300K tax deduction, or if I'm syndicating it, right? If I'm, if I'm a syndicate or a syndicator or a sponsor and I'm buying a big property, then that's a big tax deduction that I can push back to my investors. So really beneficial to understand what a cost segregation study is, know that that's out there. But also if you're a limited partner and you're investing in these syndicates, ask them what their tax strategy is. You might have a syndicate that's liquidating. Say, say that you're invested in a, in a syndicate um, and they tell you that they're going to be liquidating the deal in 2019 and uh, your estimated pass-through, I don't know, capital gains are going to be like 200K. Well, you would want to be looking in 2019 for a syndicate that's going to run a cost seg study and then pass you a large passive loss to offset the capital gain from the syndicate that you're in that's liquidating. So... Definitely something to keep in mind. But yeah, like like Thomas said, in order to get the 100% bonus depreciation, you have to run the cost seg study in year one. So you can't like file your 2018 tax returns 
and then run a cost seg study in 2020 and still get bonus depreciation. But you can decide, okay, we're going to run a cost seg study on our 2018 properties. Um, you can decide that before you file your tax returns, which can be all the way up until 10, 15, 2019. Yeah, so definitely want to watch out for the timing of those cost segregation studies and the sales of those properties. Is there any, anything else we have, anything else we're missing? I don't think so, man. I think we just saved everybody like 50,000 bucks. So I think that that's enough. (laughs) Yeah, that's enough savings for one day. For one podcast. Yeah, there will be more. (laughs) All right, guys. So thanks again for listening to this podcast. Hopefully we save you some money for a year and tips. And just remember, you you can interact with both uh, Brandon and I throughout these virtual workshops we'll be hosting over the coming months. Uh, This is not a webinar. It's a super interactive experience. You're going to come. We're going to do a presentation on a topic, usually about 15 to 20 minutes at most. And then we're going to open up the room for questions and you can ask us any questions you want related to that topic. And uh, it's going to be a perfect opportunity for you really to get those questions you've been dying to ask somebody, uh, dying to ask CPA answered. And uh, the best part about it is we're only going to charge you $29.99. I'm going to charge you you know, an arm and a leg to have us answer your questions. So we look forward to seeing you there. Again, you could find those at therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual dash workshops. See you there. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.